0: It's the live take, because I find just certain magic that you capture with a bunch of people playing together in a room.
1: Where are the answers I see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me.
2: Welcome Plain Ordinary Dragons. We're so happy you joined us today. As you've heard me say many times before, time is the most precious resource we have. And the fact that you're choosing to spend some of yours with us is humbling. So thank you. I hope everybody caught Rob's episode last week. He shared some really great experiences about facing fear. It was a really great interview. And if you haven't checked it out yet, do yourself a favor and give it a listen. You will be glad that you did. On today's episode, we get to chat with the always engaging Luba Dvorak. I'm excited to share it with you as he talks about his journey as an Eastern Bloc refugee and defecting from the Czech Republic as a child. This guy has been playing music since the time he could walk and recently released an album called American Sin. Let's check it out. How did you start? Where did you come from? Have you uh, Tell me a little bit about your, your beginning story. Where were you born? Where did you come from? Tell me that stuff, man.
0: Um, okay. So it's a bit of a, bit of a thing. I've been <laughs> everywhere, man. Uh, well, so I was born in uh, a town called Brno in the Czech Republic, which is, uh, Czechoslovakia back in the day. Lived there with my parents and my brother till about, I was about six when, uh, we went on a, uh, family vacation and, uh, never went back. All so, right. Um, yeah, we, we basically, um, you know, escaped the Iron Curtain, so to speak, um, through, we we went on vacation in uh, what was then Yugoslavia. And, um, you know, me and my brother didn't know, nobody knew uh, because you couldn't tell anybody anything back then because people would rat you out. That's how crazy stuff was over there. Yeah. Um, Your friends, your family, nobody knew. We were just going on vacation. My parents had gone on previous vacations to Western Europe. Uh, but they wouldn't let the kids go. So they kind of kept the kids hostage mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't take off. So they kind of proved themselves, I guess, a few times. And then we got uh, the, the permission and the, the papers <laughs> <laughs> to go on vacation. in Yugoslavia, which is technically like still Eastern Europe, uh, went down to the ocean. And then we had these stamps in our passports that basically just prevented us from crossing any other borders. Uh, my dad somehow magically erased those stamps. I remember him sitting on the beach doing something in the passports and he was erasing those stamps. And then one night we left through the middle of the night, we crossed uh, in the Austrian Alps. And I'm sure it was super tense for my parents. And uh, we got through and then we had some friends on the other side in Austria that helped us. You know, we basically were refugees from Eastern Europe, so went to lived in a refugee camp uh, for about, I think, six months or something. I can't remember exactly, but yeah. um, it was an old uh, it was an old army base, so we lived in this giant communal room with a bunch of other families. My mom said it was terrible for me and my brother. It was an adventure, so it was okay for us back then. And how old were you at that at that point? I was six years old, and then we sort of went through the system, and then they started placing. Refugees into, um, I like guess, sponsored uh, housing, which was, uh, you know, pensions and hotels and stuff like that. I, I'm assuming the people that own these properties will get government subsidies from housing refugees. So we mm-hmm. we ended up in this little town called uh, Lilienfeld in Austria, and it was this small, little, tiny, beautiful, little Heidi-looking town, and we stayed there for uh, you know about a year or so uh waiting our paperwork to go to Canada. My dad wanted to end up in Canada in Vancouver. So long story short, we eventually uh got to Canada. I think I was 7 at that point and around 81 then we kind of settled there and you know that's where we sort of started our our new life, you know, as far as I remember that's you know, that's always just been the life where I grew up. Yeah. Um, my dad was um a musician as well, fairly well known in sort of the folk scene. Uh, so he had friends uh, always over every weekend. There'd be some sort of jamboree or camping trip where people would be playing. I'd be surrounded by guitars all the time. And that's how I sort of started wanting to, uh, you know, that's how I got uh, addicted to it.
2: Sure. <laughs> that's a good, good way to describe it, actually. So what was it like growing up in Canada, man? I mean, I've never um, been there, so. Well, I mean, it was great. It was like... Um, it was
0: like growing up in a, in a movie, really, because uh, if you watch, like, you know, the Explorers from back then or something like, or E.T., stuff like that. I mean, uh-huh. sort of nice little small, nice-looking town, lush greenery and stuff like that. I mean, that was Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't yet the, the city of glass. It is now. That was sort of after Expo 86 happened.
2: But it was super cool. It was, it was safe. It was a great place to grow up. How was it integrating into, or I mean, I guess you were probably young enough that integrating into the different society, you know, different from where you came from really wasn't as big of a deal for you?
0: Not really. I mean, eventually, you know, initially um, there was, you know, the language barrier, but I mean, when you're that young, so just to sidetrack a bit, one of my friends is a brain surgeon and uh, he told me that when you're, you know, from the time you're born until you're about 11 or 12, your language skills get stored in one side, one part of your brain. And then after that, it kind of switches to another part of your brain. Mm -hmm. And that's why sometimes people have accents when they learn English as a second language. So I was young enough that when we lived in, you know, I went to first grade in Austria and I learned German and spoke German for that year that I Mm -hmm. was in school there. And then moving to Canada, it wasn't really an issue. I mean, I kind of picked it up fairly quickly. You know, it was, you know, there was a bunch of immigrant kids in the schools and you know maybe you got picked on a little bit because you were the weird kid from Europe but <laughs> but it wasn't really bad it was you know it was, it was fine and i don't even remember really not speaking english so yeah.
2: how how was how, how was school for you uh, grade school high school that kind of stuff how how was that uh that time for you um it was it was good it was i was like average
0: student you know i didn't mess around too much i mean i you know basically in like fourth grade or whatever it was when i was 10 years old i heard born in usa on the radio and i just that's what i needed to do for the rest of my life <laughs> whatever that was i wasn't sure but the power of whatever was coming out of that radio was you know that that's when it all really started and then you know i wanted getting into high school and i could play my dad's guitars and he had a fender strat that he let me play sometimes and so i was really focused musically oriented at a very young age the school it was fine i mean you know i do my homework and stuff and i you know have c's and b's and you know it was it, it was fine the language barrier wasn't even there at that point when i got into high school that's when i really sort of i met dudes who were you know there was the band room with gear and guys that were jamming in there and then older guys you'd see in high school kind of jamming they were like yeah you know and then my dad bought me you know like a a Fender Tally like I'd always wanted. And I I would practice three hours a day minimum every day just because I wanted to learn. And I had a really good uh, private teacher, Michael Friedman, who I'm still good friends with from the age of, I want to say 12 for about seven years. And that was weekly lessons. Just a really amazing uh, teacher. Because it wasn't just, what songs do you want to learn? It, was, it started off with theory, with notes, with finger-finger-picking, arpeggios. Like, it went through the whole thing. So he that kept me interested in, in learning more. And then I'd start jamming with guys in high school. Uh, and then by the time I was 15, we were, I played my first club show, right? Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We couldn't come out. We had to stay, you know, in the green room. We were allowed to come on stage and and do our thing, and then you know so, and then it kind
2: of took off. That's pretty cool. So you've been, I mean, you just playing been playing music since you know you you were walking. I, I mean, so you knew from an early age that that's what you wanted to do. I mean, right? Did you ever was there, yeah, a, there ever was, consider anything else, or was it just no? This is it. No, this is it. There was there was no. <laughs> awesome. There was no backup plan. So. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it sometimes a, it's good to pedal burn to the, the metal. You know.
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. My mom wasn't too happy about it. Um, But my dad was like, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, you know, I want to be a musician. I want to be a rock star, whatever you you want at that time. It's like, that's totally fine. But that is probably the most, one of the most hardest professions to get into. But best of luck. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I stuck with it and then I kept. You know, I joined all the bands in high school. Uh, I ended up <laughs> teaching, like, grade 12 guitar and when I was in eighth grade uh, for a little <laughs> bit. And then, we start. you know, I met some of the, my best friends in those bands who I'm still best friends with now. The first band was called Terror of Tiny Town, which was named after a black-and-white all-midget Western musical, which was nice. one of the worst movies of all time. <laughs> but um, interesting. And, and we were, you know, that was mid-'90s. We kind of, we took it very seriously. We, uh, we'd pl- go down and play in Seattle. We ended up sort of getting uh, hooked up with an indie label there. You know, we'd play with like, you know, Mud Honey and like Mike Watt and all these dudes like Pearl Jam before they even got signed. You know, I was like 18, 17, 18 or something like that. What
2: was was that like, man? You uh, clearly hung around with some pretty talented folks, you know, throughout the years. What what was it like, especially in those early years for you? um, I mean, it
0: was, I mean, I didn't know who these bands were at the time. You know, Ah, they were just bands that were on the, on the bill that we were on. So (laughs) I had no idea who they were, but it was cool because it was like the dreams it's happening. Right. You know, we're here, we're playing (laughs) these gigs and these guys have long hair and look at them. They're like (laughs) scary looking, you know, and they rock, you know, so it was, it was all super exciting. I mean, you know, it was like, you know, we were, we were doing it. I mean, and we, whatever money we'd make, we'd put in a band account, we'd made records with it and blah, blah, blah. We won this giant um, worldwide battle of the bands called Music Quest, which was sponsored by Yamaha. Um, nice, which was pretty insane. I mean, we thought we joined something completely different, but uh, we and we kept winning our round without even trying. And then we got into like the Canadian final in Winnipeg. We were representing British Columbia, and there was all these other bands from different provinces. And and like Pearl Jam was the headliner at this point; they'd already put out ten. And uh, and we weren't even trying. We we're like, okay, we're good here. Like, this is a cool little trip, and we'd won a bunch of Yamaha gear, and and then we ended up winning that too, and going to Japan to represent Canada as the Canadian band, you know, which was, yeah. it, was uh, it was a bad decision on somebody's part. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, we were just terrorizing people man, <laughs> in Japan. I mean, you know, a bunch of you know,
2: how was that? I mean, you know, I well, mean, in your early twenties or you know, teens, going to another country like that and i mean i bet that had to be a blast it was it was unbelievable i mean you know when we found out we were gone we were like this is
0: crazy and then when we got there it was even crazier you know i'd never been to asia and it was i mean it was a different planet you know it was it was tokyo it was wow what is all of this and everything's weird like they sell underwear in, you know like vending machines on the street used <laughs> underwear okay i don't know man they do some weird things over there <laughs> wow <right. laughs> but you know that's
2: interesting for so
0: sure. that was neat and then we spent like four days in tokyo and then they took us to this uh, like resort called sumagoi which was a, literally a yamaha resort where even like the bathtubs and toilets were made by yamaha <laughs> it was very kind of, it was very like Jurassic Park looking, obviously without the dinosaurs. But you had these little cars you drove around in. They had like grass skiing and these huge banquet halls. And that's where this worldwide battle of the bands took place. So we were there for, oh God, I think we were there for four four or five days, I think, with all these other bands. And we, the, the U.S. band that was there that year was the band, uh, the Verve Pipe. Oh before, yeah! Before they ever got big, they got signed off of being in that thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah. And then, so we got back from that. We didn't win anything past that point, but it was great to be there, all expenses paid. So, uh, super cool. Then we got back. We sort of made our own couple of uh, records with the label in Seattle, and um, and eventually that the, the band just kind of fell apart. At, at, towards the tail end of that, I was already had my own band called Big Rig Sweeties. Uh, Whereas I was just playing guitar in the first band, but I I was writing and I had, you know, stuff that I wanted to do. And the first band was more, it was more alternative punk, rocky kind of 90s stuff. I was wanting to do, you know, like uh, more kind of Heartland, Springsteen, Mellon but more like Georgia Satellites, like Mm -hmm. really kind of like that kind of straight up, you know, rock and roll. So then I started my band, Big Rig Sweeties, and ran that for 97 to about 2001-ish. Toured Europe with that band a little bit. And then um, eventually started doing solo shows after 9-11 because I had a big tour booked over in Europe. And 9-11 happened and then nobody wanted to go and people didn't want to fly. So, but I had this grant money that I that got from, from, uh, from the Canadian uh, Arts Association thing. So I went alone, and I went uh, open. um, I jumped on this opening tour for this bigger band over there, uh, doing solo acoustic shows, and that was super uh, strange at first for me Mm -hmm. uh, because I'd always played with a band, and to play solo in front of like these larger crowds was very nerve wracking. And but and I had to find my voice. I had to find how to perform in that sense. I'm sure it was really terrible at first, but then I eventually kind of found it and then decided that, yeah, this is this, I'm good, full steam ahead, that kind of thing so on my own.
2: What, what do you find is the, for, for you the biggest difference between, you know, doing the acoustic solo gig versus playing with the, the full band? What type of adjustments did you have to make or did you feel like you needed to make to, to do that? Uh,
0: well, you have to sort of adjust your playing style because, If you're, you know, fronting a band on acoustic guitar, you're generally, you know, just strumming the rhythms and, you know, keeping it it in sync and having that, you know, the band drives it behind you. Here, when you take the band out, you gotta, you you can't just be up there strumming away like you would if there was a band there, because then it's just, it doesn't translate, you know, you have to deliver, you have to deliver the song, but now on your own. So uh, the playing style, the way I would approach playing, was the the learning curve and you sort of have to play with your fingers or learn how to strum but be able to play melodies while you're strumming notes mm-hmm. out like find sort of grooves and rhythms and that's that's just uh you know that's just practice yeah i kind of i kind of
2: think uh, of like dave matthews style when you know we talk about things like that right he was one of the the first uh, guitarists that i saw that really it felt to me was doing something special on that guitar you know you're here in the u.s now right yeah oh so when when did you kind of move from being in canada to coming into the u.s what kind of prompted that that's sort of part two of the whole
0: you know the history of of Luba, um, <laughs> because it' it really everything changed, so in two thousand and four, I was doing a uh, tour in Europe, and my dad was over there doing some other shows separately, and we were going to meet up and then so make a long story short though, so my dad died tragically uh, in a car accident in two thousand and four over there oh I'm sorry and that you know that was a major major life changing event for me. I mean, the floor dropped out, and I kind of became an adult instantly uh, I was twenty nine at the time and so once you know we we got over that whole thing and we settled all the all the stuff and the wakes and the funeral and and everything to sort of and then you know helping my mom relocate and blah 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 all the stuff that goes along with that don 't want to get too dark but um once, once she was good and my brother was all right, then you know I'd already been coming down and playing in the states all the time. You know, I'd, I'd do West Coast tours just by myself in my van, drive from Vancouver down to San Diego, and maybe take a left turn to go to Phoenix, and then come back up through Vegas and then Reno or something, and Spokane, and come back home. So I was already doing that. I was also uh, flying to uh, Chicago a lot. I had a good friend, John Litz, out there who um, was a major sort of part of the music scene in Chicago. He owned an elbow room uh, and he owned a couple of restaurants. And then, and then he, he just opened up this, this honky tonk barbecue joint, which he's kind of fashioned after, you know, a classic Austin sort of barbecue music venue kind of thing. Um, so we were going out there and playing. And so then after my dad died, I was like, I'd always wanted to to move to Chicago or New York I sort of was like, mm, go big or home. So I'd opted to go to New York. I didn't really know anybody there, a handful of people, but I'd been there and the energy was exactly what I was looking for at the time. So I uh, sort of packed up my stuff and, and moved there in 2005. And then, you know, <laughs> then there's the New York years.
2: Yeah. Well, tell, tell me about the New York years. You and I met at Camp Copperhead. Uh, it's a recurring theme on this podcast right, for, yeah. for a number of, of, of the people that I interview, <laughs> right? You know, it's kind of interesting because before I got to camp, we have a mutual friend, Joe Thompson. Joe reached out to me and he was like, hey, when you get to camp this year, I'm not going to be there, but when you get to camp this year, you've got to find, this, you've got to find Luba and hook up with him. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to love this guy. And I was like, hey, Joe, all right, man, you know, your recommendation's gold with me, bud. So yeah. So t- tell me a little bit about for that. sure, because, yeah. I,
0: uh, I, I love Joe
2: Thompson. Um so
0: uh kind of moved to New York and you know I would had some money saved up I s- sold everything I had most almost all my guitars and you know I think I had maybe like 10 grand which started to funnel out pretty quick uh <laughs> in, in New, New York, York City yeah I mean, it goes pretty pretty quick um so I was kind of down and out for a while trying to find work meet people um but I was you know doing I was hitting all the open mics I could just to Try and get into the the scene somehow, and I think that 's how you get into any scene anywhere is um, just go to the open mics. people tend to talk down to, about open mics, but really there 's nothing to talk down about i mean it 's people gather, people express whatever they do, uh, some of it 's great, some of it 's not, but it 's a communal thing and uh, so I started meeting all these people, we start seeing each other, different musicians around different open mics, and kind of so there was kind of a little foothold. And then um, I auditioned for Larry Oaks, who was running the um, New York Songwriter Sessions at the Bitter End. And also at CBGB's a gallery next door to CBGB's. So I auditioned for him, and he got me onto, onto some of these nights. And uh, we really kind of hit it off. And he had been we're a production manager at this place called the Hero Ballroom which is underneath the Maritime Hotel in New York City on 16th and 9th Avenue, he needed a lighting guy. So, you know, do you do lights? I'm like, yeah, sure, I do. I mean, you know, (laughs) turn it on and off, right? I mean, how hard is it to do lights? (laughs) So I got the job and learned, you know, on the job, you know, that was the safety net, being able to work there. And I worked there for – I think it was eight years until it closed in 2012. And that allowed me to then, throughout those years, throughout that time I'd met early on Mark Greenberg, who still plays drums in my band um, at the Bitter End. Once I was in the Bitter End playing these showcases, then I would, every Sunday, there would be a, a jam that would be happening that Mark would run. So I'd be there almost every Sunday. And then you'd start meeting. You, start, you can see people and how they play. And you can kind of try and put together a band, ask mm-hmm. guys to play with you. Mark started playing with me very early on. And uh, and the rest of the band kind of filled out. I mean, Tony Tino was in there for a long time. He eventually went to play with, he always played with Juba, uh, Southside Johnny. But he played with Gavin DeGraw, and so he kind of left for a bit. And, you know, Greg McMullen on pedal steel was always there in the beginning. Uh, And so, you know, Mark Gregg still play with me today. And then Brian Karp, who's playing bass with me now, too. And then Greg McMullen, who plays steel, was friends with Joe Thompson. And that's how I met Joe. Uh, Mm -hmm. We do shows together. And, you know, then we kind of had this solid band going, and we were really trying to hit it hard. And, uh, you know, New York's weird. I mean, you can't really... I don't think you can really build a following in New York City, you know, um, unless, you know, it's a college band and you bring out your, you know, 80 friends, the dorm mm-hmm. people and everything for to a gig and then it's good. But it was always, you know, you make money if you bring people. But, you know, the, the funny thing is like, you know, it's like a drive through service sometimes because you'd have one band who brings in 80 people. And then when that band's done, everybody leaves. <laughs> that, and then a new group of people come in. You know what I mean? So it's... yeah not like the people are hanging out like it's it was very strange, but we were hitting it pretty good and uh, made a couple of great records uh, wrote a bunch of uh, great songs got built a home studio got to produce uh, records for some friends of mine. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, that was 15 years, you know, in New York City so, or something wow. like that. So, was,
2: so was, now, did you, did you do any, like, side jobs and things along the way? I mean, like, you talked about doing some lighting stuff. You know, how much, how much of it was the, was the music piece, or not, like, percentage-wise, but I'm just I'm yeah. curious about the existence of the musician, and were you able to survive gig to gig to gig, and the gigs were paying for it, or were you having to do some things on the side as well?
0: No, I mean so you can't. You're not going to make a living playing music in New York City unless you're playing in Broadway or you know something or on on a TV show. But um, no, so you got to find a way to to make it work. So I was always doing uh, tech work, lighting or sound, and that was my equivalent of you know the actor who's got to wait tables. You you have you find something that it, you're still in the industry, but you gotta you know subsidize your addiction so to speak because you know I mean I was in the beginning. I was paying my guys uh, out of my pocket. I think it was 100 bucks a show, which is standard rate.
1: Yeah. You know?
0: And it was more of a, you know, hired gun kind of a professional musicians type of scenario which really uh is a different scenario than having friends in your band. I think it's better. Uh, I think more gets done. So yeah, so I was I was paying out a lot of money, So, but but I yeah. had a job that I was able to do it, and I was able to pay the rent, and everything was smooth sailing, you know, up until there was less work, you know, money would go up and down, and it'd be like, hmm, you know, I'd always, I still, and I still pay them, it's just, um, it's just a matter of, you know, working with them on, on a rate that made sense for everybody, it's like, well, either we bring the rate down a little bit, and so we can still keep playing all of these shows, or we just play less shows and keep the rate the same, so... You know, mm-hmm. And everybody's like, "No, let's just play, you know <laughs> yeah. so you have to juggle it, you know you have to find a way, at least back then i I don't even know how you would do it later. just you know it started to get weird, everything started to go up price wise and but it was it was a great time, you know it was uh i'm I'm still considering myself a New Yorker, you know it was um those are the most important years I think
2: of my life yeah. Yeah. And this is the, this was the Brooklyn Twang years. This is where Brooklyn Twang was born, is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh so uh I guess, you know, in the last maybe 5 years or so uh, that I was there. So my band basically we we decided that, you know, Greg had this project called Woodwires and Whiskey, which was just a rotating sort of band of musicians who, where where it wasn't a paid kind of a scenario was just let's just go out and play some fun tunes. There's nobody's name. It's not. We're not backing anybody. You know. We're just gonna get together and play. So we mm-hmm. we 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 had Woodwires and Whiskey as my actual the same members as my band, uh-huh. except we just did it under Woodwires and Whiskey, and we would just play, um, you know, old old honky tonk and country songs in various barbecue joints and bars and whatever. And we, there a bar, a place opened up down a street from me in Bushwick, which was called the Shop, and it was huge, and it was a it was a barbecue uh, restaurant kind of a deal, and also a motorcycle shop with a stage in it. So it was like this giant, you know, pretty neat uh, space, and we ended up sort of being a house band and playing there every Sunday during the day, like a honky tonk brunch or whatever we called it. Out of there is where I you know i was never really social media and you kind of got to get into it Mm -hmm. blah 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 and then what are hashtags and then (laughs) this was all like back then it was like what's a hashtag and then so so then i so then you got to have a hashtag so then i invented brooklyn twang as my hashtag nice and that's where it all came from and then it just kind of stuck you know it became a thing (laughs) yeah
2: yeah okay all right that that makes sense well so uh okay so then you had the the new york years now by the time that we met at camp copperhead though you had already moved out from new york right
0: yeah well i had just moved like uh so with this copperhead thing you know i'd always been a steve roll fan um way back Mm -hmm. Uh, like i saw him i think when i was 1615 maybe uh, on the, on the hardway tour um oh man so, i'm so jealous yeah man <laughs> um so uh and my buddy keen who i've who played guitar with me and i've known since you know forever uh sent me the link to camp copperhead and i'd heard about it before and i knew that joe had gone but i was like it's three grand or whatever it's like that's impossible for me Mm -hmm. um so he sent me a link of you know enter for for a scholarship to, to steve Earl's camp so and he just sent me the link and said just do it and shut up you <laughs> right. know i wouldn't do it i'm like i'm not really in the i'm like ah, you know yeah. screw that so <laughs> so I, so i hit the link i emailed them my song queen of the rodeo and didn't say anything else in the email right mm-hmm. it was just a song thanks luba right you know? <laughs> and then I, I completely forgot about it because now because we were moving we were we were uh you know getting ready to move, finding a place in Houston. Like it was just not on my radar at all. Mm-hmm. And when we got to Houston, July 9th or something like this, um, literally a couple of days later, I get an email saying, you've won the scholarship to Steve Rolfe's camp. I'm like, <laughs> what the hell? What is this? What is this? Right. This is insane, right? Which meant I got, and it was like uh, two weeks later or a week later, it was pretty like, it was pretty tight. So then I flew back up to New York, you know, to go to go to the camp, you know, it was, yeah. literally, it was literally right after we, I'd, I'd gotten to Houston. Yeah.
2: That had to be pretty surreal, I would imagine, and um, and Joe, of course, had told me to look out for you. And uh, I remember, I remember walking down, and, and you were talking with Darren, I think, at the time. You two mm. were talking and whatnot, and I saw that hat said Brooklyn Twang, and I was like, "Um, <laughs> I, you look like a like a might be a Luba." Joe Thompson told me to look out for you, and you're like, "Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah," and then you needed to go to Brooklyn and I wanted to go see my friend Pete Sinjin I don't know if you know Pete or not but he's he's another uh right another camper from the first year 2014 yeah. uh and I hadn't seen him since then and I was like well I'm I'm this close why not why not go hang out some uh you needed a ride and so we we took off and did a road trip basically from yeah, yeah totally. uh you know Big Indian to Brooklyn. And uh, yeah. that was uh, aside from the conversation, and you know, and I, I, had, a, I had a blast uh, hanging out with you. But then I dropped you off basically at a recording studio, right? I mean, Atomic <laughs> yeah. Sound. I mean, yeah. it wasn't like, exactly. hey, take, take me somewhere to, to, to my motel. It's like, <laughs> hey, I need to go to this recording studio because I got some stuff to do. Yeah. And, and, and I can't tell you how much I wanted to hang out with, with and stay there, you know, because right. it seemed like a really cool setup. And the cats that were there were cool. And, and there's probably not more, there's probably nowhere that's more like Disney World to me than right. a recording studio. Right. I just... love it you know and so it was all i could do to pull myself away and in go see pete because which i wanted to do but yeah yeah, yeah. it it was it was cool the horn player that was there you know all that yeah yeah
0: uh, yeah yeah. i remember you hung out for a little bit and um yeah we were we were working on um, a record for my buddy butch phelps yeah, that was Kevin uh, on trumpet and Butch and Skip Ward on bass, and uh, I mean Merle, who owns the Atomic Sound. Uh, it's it's you know it's my go to studio. It's it just feels
2: so uh, comfortable in there, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's cool as, as all get out because you would never know there's a studio there. Like, like right. you know, we, like we parked on the street, and I was like, there's there's this is an alley. Um, you know, and, and, and granted, I, you know, I, although I do have family uh, in in Jersey, and I have spent time on the East Coast, I think right. it's very obvious that I am I am more of a Southern guy <laughs> than I am a city guy. Even though I love I love the city, like my, I love my time ta- the times I spent in DC, sure. all that. But so the, yeah, so then you're like, okay, all right, we're gonna go through this metal door, and then we're gonna go up this a couple flights of stairs, you know. And I'm just like, oh, this is this is interesting. This is either gonna be way cooler or I'm gonna come out of here dead. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> so it was a blast and, and it dropped you off there and, and so forth. So how, how did things progress from there? What, were you working on American Sin at that time? No, that was uh,
0: the sessions for uh, Butch Phelps uh, and the Elevators. I, I think the record's called Butch Phelps and the Elevators. I think that's the only one that's, that's called that. It's, it, it's out, it came out, so his play came out like last summer or spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we were working on then, tracking the final stuff.
2: And so what so, were you doing for him on that? I mean, like, were you doing audio engineer type of stuff? Were you working with Pro Tools and, and, and doing the editing piece? Or what part were you kind of playing in that, if you don't want to um,
0: I was playing guitar
2: on it. Gotcha. Um, and sort of, uh, you know, helping to
0: produce it, helping to kind of engineer it, you know, dialing the vibe sort of. Uh, but it was a team effort. Um, but, yeah, so it was more of a musical chair I was taking for that one. Gotcha.
2: All right. Well, what happened next, man? Where'd you go from after I dropped you off and you finished the, where, where, what happened there, man? man. Well, I mean, I think that was the
0: the session that we got uh, Charlie Giordano in on who's, uh, who plays in the East street band. He he took, uh, he plays keys. I mean, organ and uh, accordion in Bruce's band. Uh, so that was super fun uh, having him come and play some keyboards and stuff, and then you know eventually got the the record out and uh and it sounds great. I was actually just playing it the other night um' we're trying to reminisce about it haven 't heard it in a while so it 's a cool record. You guys want to check it out which Phelps and the elevators um and then uh so I got back to Houston and then kind of had to figure out you know what am I going to do to keep the lights on. Through uh, my buddy, uh, Eric Ambell, he knew Pete Gordon, who owns the Continental Club here in Houston. That's how I got hooked up
2: with, you know, sound gig at the Continental Club down here. Okay, so quick question. Uh, Your friend, Eric, is he the one that... um... Did he play with Steve at one point is Is that the one? Yes mm-hmm. okay, all right okay, I thought that's who I thought that's who you were talking about, yeah, so. Roscoe, because I remember Steve came out in the concert and said, "Well, we've had another disappearing uh, guitarist, so uh, we 've got Roscoe with us you know and and so for me, it was fun uh, yeah. to get because he knows pete pete 's engine and and apparently you and you know and sure. so i uh, i 've always felt very lucky and honored to to have met the people that I've met uh, and be in the circles that I am without being really a musician. You know what I mean? And so sure. uh, it's been, it's, it's you know, so it's just very, it's very cool for me because I'm like, oh, this guy knows, you know, Eric, who, who was playing with Steve and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, sorry, that's just yeah. a little bird walk for my Personal joy there, so uh, sorry I didn't didn't mean to to step on there. No,
0: no, 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 not at all. I mean, yeah, you know, it's cool. I mean, you know, it's it's cool to know Roscoe. (laughs) Um, But uh, but uh, so he, um, you know, he he knew Pete Gordon, who owns the Continental Club here, and who also plays with Mojo Nixon and has been for you know twenty five years or however long it's been. Um, And that's how I got hooked up uh, with the Continental Club scene down here. Uh, Was able to have some more some headspace i need to clear my head after new york i that was the main point of coming down here uh it felt good it's a good music scene and i just needed to kind of clear my head i couldn't i couldn't write i was it was it it started to close in on me Mm -hmm. i never thought it would happen but it it did so once i kind of got settled and started started thinking about writing and 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 this was you know shortly after i got back from from camp copperhead you know, you come out of that so like rejuvenated and like inspired, not just uh, by Steve, but also by the people you meet there. Like you know, like mm-hmm. you and Rob, and and uh, I know you had Tom on the other night, the Sadie um, Campbell, Sadie, yeah, verse, right. yeah, and um, you know, and so you make all these new. I feel you know lifetime, uh, lifelong friendships Uh, so I came back kind of really inspired to do something and I started thinking about writing and started slowly writing and um, you know like around April May I seriously started to get into it because I I to I had to make a deadline because I if I don't have deadlines I tend to procrastinate a lot (laughs) so I was like this record's got to be done and it's got to be out by and we we were kind of switching some thinking of dates. We were thinking it's either got to be before the summer because we were going to push to radio, which I'd never done before. So we, we need, you kind of have to think of when you want to drop the record and then move backwards from that timeline.
2: Go ahead. How was that experience, uh, you know, going, you know, pushing to radio and, and doing that whole promotion deal?
0: It was really interesting, but let me just explain the, the timeline because it was sure. important for all of this. Uh, so we were going to drop it, b- it before the summer. So like in end of June or something like this. And then we all heard about Springsteen's putting out a country record right mm-hmm. in June. And I'm like, well, we can't, it can't come out at the same time. <laughs> and just cause it's, if it's a country-ish record, which he's never done, it's going to, you know, it's gonna take up space on country radio. Not to saying they're not gonna play anything else, but it's gonna get a big push. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't want my record to get kind of, you know, pushed aside. But that was the way of thinking. Turns out that doesn't matter at all. <laughs> I found out. But uh, but so we decided to release it at the at the end of summer, beginning of September. So then we moved the timeline backwards. we were like, well, when does it have to be sent in to get pressed? Because we need CDs and vinyl. And then moving back from that, when does it have to be finished, mastered? And then when does it have to be mixed? And then you go, so when do I have to have the songs done by? (laughs) When do we we have to record them? Right? Mm -hmm. What happened was I was like, well, let's just record them on my birthday as a birthday thing. You know? Yeah. So went up to New York. So that, you know, the writing time was pretty much right after I got back and f- settled in Houston because we were recording in November so uh, you know I was writing f- from August to November to last minute um and sending up demos and stuff like that to the guys mm-hmm. then we went to atomic sound for one day and i was like you know we walk in everybody's everybody's you know super into it we've played a bunch of the songs before and i was like okay here's the plan we're going to record 14 songs today <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. live off the floor and everybody's like yeah right <laughs> right And i'm like no no we'll get it i mean come on let's if we got 10 hours right mm-hmm. it's 14 songs and a song is like four or five minutes i mean do the math it's totally doable right right We're, so we ended, we did it uh we started tracking and the way we record uh, almost air, all the time is everybody's set up in the studio everybody's playing together live i'm singing it and playing acoustic live and everything's with the intention of keeping everything there's no scratch vocals there's no this and that there's no replacing anything it's you know it's it's the live take because i find just certain magic that you capture with a bunch of people playing together in a room opposed to you know tracking stuff
2: but um I completely agree with you, and he, you and I have talked about this in the past. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and and that is one of the things that makes your music jump out is because even though you're you're doing it in a studio and you've got all that quality, you also have that live aspect that you're able to better, in in my opinion, better capture than, you know, splitting it up and putting it all back together. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. Obviously, you know, everybody has their own thing, but that's one of the things I love about your music is that live piece. You know, you can just feel it in the music itself. So
0: good. um, Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's, that is the point. That is the point. You have to, I'm trying to, you know, capture lightning in a bottle, you know, Um, And and sometimes you get it and then you're lucky, but you got to have the right group of people in that room. And I've been lucky to have some of the best dudes who get my vibe and and are on the same page. Um, And, you know, they, they leave little spots out of songs. We don't do everything, but they leave pockets where we can add stuff later, but generally we're doing everything live. So Mm -hmm. we we tracked, uh, we tracked uh, nine uh, songs, uh, full songs. And then, I was like, well, I've always had this idea to do just an acoustic EP of a bunch of old country songs that I like and call it American Wino. It was the working title for the the full record was American Sin. I was like, let's, so we, we, same session, just towards the end of the day, when we got all the songs that I felt we needed to get, we pulled everything into the live room and just, you know, it was mandolin, dobro, I'm on acoustic, uh, bass and, and, you know, basically kick drum and, and brushes on a snare. And we recorded uh, five songs for the American Wino EP uh, live again. And those Mm -hmm. were one or two takes. You know, a piece. So we did do 14 songs in one day. Um, you know, like I told them we would. <laughs> yeah.
2: I mean, that's awesome. I mean, and and that's uh, you know that's really kind of unheard of I- I- these days. You know, that, that at least from my perspective, I, I don't I don't hear people talking about doing that these days. Anytime I hear people right. talking about recording an album, it's always I'm doing this and then I got to track this and then we're doing this piece and then we're doing that piece. Yeah. You know, and so forth. So you know, in some ways, it is a little refreshing to me to hear people trying to do the live, because there's just something special about live music. And, you know, Tom and I were talking about that the other day. Of his album, he's got a cut on there that is is phenomenal. And, and the more I listen to it, the more I like it. But honestly, my favorite version of that song is him doing it acoustic with uh-huh. his guitar just because of the way that he makes that guitar sound like a piano. So I, I'm just a fool for live music. Now, American Sin, so that that's the latest album, right? Yes, let's talk about American Sin a little bit. A little bit about yeah. the album, um, at least a few cuts on it for sure. I mean, you've got a, a bunch of tunes on here that are, are just really great cuts. Queen of the Rodeo, we already talked about that a little bit, right? Because that was the one that won you the scholarship.
0: Uh, yep, and I'd and I'd uh, initially done that uh, with the f- thought of putting it out as an EP back in 2014 or something like that, 15 maybe, and it was it was a different version, and I I I'd never put it out. I don't really know why I was. I think I was trying to sell it. Yeah, I'm glad I hung, hung, hung on to it because, yeah, it was sort of a centerpiece. You know, f- that in Irene, which was also on the the EP uh, that never got put out, and that sort of got the ball rolling.
2: So, well, tell me a little bit about Queen of the Rodeo. How, what's the genesis of that song? I mean, like, uh, what's is, is there a story behind it?
0: Yeah, it's nothing like you would think. But um, it we were uh, my friend Esther um brim who's out in la who's a film editor and an indie filmmaker uh was showcasing her movie I think it was butterflies uh or route 60s i think it was route 66 that's right route 66 and uh, she, at this fest the route 66 festival in kingman arizona and she's like you want to come out because i had some music in it and so we went out there they had this big outdoor stage for this route 66 festival but half the time there was nobody on it so uh, we found like the the person in charge and and my friend Esther was like, He wants to play. I'm like, No, I never said that. I never <laughs> said I wanted to play. She's like, You guys have time? He goes, Yeah, we got tons of time. Like, whenever. Tomorrow today, what do you want? He's like, I'm like, I don't know, whatever. So so I ended up playing this thing. Uh-huh. Um, and as I'm playing, I see these two girls walking down in front of in front of the stage and they've got the queen of the rodeo. You know, like the banner and the yeah. whole the get up and the the had hat and the crown and the whole. I was like, wow, and then so that kind of stuck with me, that image. And then Esther's daughter Scarlett was really young, but her she's got these super blue uh, eyes, and that's where the line you know eyes as blue as the Arizona sky comes from. So, mm-hmm. oh, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of. And then I just kind of you know I sort of wrote the movie to the imagery of those two rodeo girls walking on those fairgrounds, you know. I just sort of rode around that imagery.
2: About irene as well uh is, is there what What can you tell me about that um so let me get this straight uh irene
0: was written about hurricane irene that came through new york and messed up a bunch of stuff i used to live across from a park in bushwick i mean it toppled trees there was like a tornado that went through there it was like a major storm and then i did a solo acoustic video for it back then, uh, which I recorded during the night of hurricane Sandy. Oh, wow. So okay. It's out there on YouTube. It's, you know, like it's, it's all candlelight and stuff like that. Cause the power was out. Um, so that song, it's technically about getting lost in a storm sort of, but in mm-hmm. a, you know, I don't know. It's hard to kind of put my finger on what it's exactly about, but it's, uh, you know, it's de- definitely the thought processes. It's, it's, about a hurricane,
2: I guess. Gotcha. you about a couple others. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about uh, Loving You is Wrong. It's a great song. I, I remember when you were writing it, we had texted back and forth a little bit about, mm-hmm. about it as you were doing it. You would sent me some early demo stuff, uh, and then you ended up recording it with a, uh, as a duet, right? Um, yeah. With um, a fellow with Sadie, Copperhead.
0: <laughs> yeah, with Sadie Campbell. I sort of started fooling around with it uh, I think at the camp the The riff of it, and then when I heard Sadie sing, I mean, it was like she's such an amazing singer that it's like whoa, <laughs> like yeah, this, she should be. This should be a duet, you know, sort of like you know the old country, classic country duets. You know, that was sort of what I what I wanted mm-hmm. uh, out of it. Just because I at at the camp, you know, we would meet up in whoever's living room and pass around a bottle of whiskey and, and play songs and yeah. Uh, that's the first time I'd really uh, played with her and, and sang with her. And it just seemed to work. There was a vibe. So I always had that voice in mind when I was writing those lyrics. Yeah, I was just trying to write a classic country song. And, and that was the whole thought process behind the whole record. You know, I was listening to a lot of uh, Gary Stewart, who is the king of Honky Tonk, for people that don't know. Super famous uh, songwriter country singer but kind of obscure i mean you know he's he wrote the uh, she's acting single i'm drinking doubles mm-hmm. drinking thing bunch of songs that people know they just don't know it's him so the whole idea was i was wanting to make a little bit more of a country record than i'd made before i always made kind of americana sounding records because i you know i need to have pedal steel over port over everything because <laughs> that's just the way I like it. indeed <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm you know? right there with you. Uh, so I was going a little bit more classic country. I was almost like going towards like 80s country, which I used to hate back mm-hmm. in the day. You know, <laughs> but certain classic sound about that stuff. And I was sort of, you know, like Dwight, you know, 80s Dwight. Mm-hmm. like And Gary Stewart, that stuff's very kind of 80s sounding. So that was the imagination of the landscape of the record that, that i had in my head and that's why i think loving you is wrong fits it perfectly
1: slip me something easy baby. put on something slow no use trying to fight. I can
2: It's probably my favorite cut off the album. Cool. Um, I mean, it's, it's really good. Um, but, you know, I'm always so biased with Friends music because, you know, <laughs> I've gotten to watch the genesis of, of things sometimes, you know, and it almost feels like you're a little bit of an insider. So you're always, you know, really, you feel connected to it even more so. Uh, but sure. it's, a, it's a great tune, and you and Sadie sound great on it. Thank Sadie you. does have an amazing voice. Okay, so tell me about the title track, American Sin. Tell me where that comes from, what it's about a little bit. Straight up, it's it's about the migrant kids
0: that are sitting in cages at the border. And when that sort of started happening at first, uh, it was so unbelievable to me. How is this happening? <laughs> like mm-hmm. kids are being taken away from their parents in this strange country they're trying to come to because who knows what kind of hell they're going through wherever they're fleeing. They're not fleeing just to flee. Nobody wants to flee their home. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? People flee when something bad's going down. I mean, just straight and simple, that's, it's that. I felt I, I, it's not meant to be political. It's just a statement saying, why is this happening? I'm not going to go into the, the, those reasons, but that's the thought process. I wanted to leave the conversation. I wanted to leave the subject on the table, perhaps open for discussion. But I, f- but I felt I needed to say it. And that song uh, basically wrote itself. That some of them come come pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them don't. But that one, you know, was one of those written in fifteen minutes, kind of kind of a thing. And then also, but with a lot of these songs, if I'd you know sent you the the initial demos, you know they don't sound anything like they do in the end. Uh, sure. Of those, that's the approach by those guys playing on that record who make it sound like that, like the uh, the toms and the kind of that beat. That's the main feature of the song. Um, was Mark just like invented it on the spot, started playing it? Like I didn't tell him anything about it. You know, he just. Mm-hmm that was just what, what happened and you, that's the best, best, best stuff. And that's why, you know, that song
2: again is, is honest. It's just an honest song. Yeah. And uh, so I just wanted to to make a quick note here. You're talking about how that came to life in the studio with your drummer, you know, or maybe not in the studio itself, but when playing it, you know.
0: No, it was in the studio. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: it's the magic of live music. And if you've experienced it, you understand that piece. If you haven't experienced it, it's really hard for people to understand what this living being is. I just wanted to make a note of that for everybody out there listening that, you you know, there is this magical creation moment that happens with live music that you just don't get. At least in my experience, you don't get it by sitting down and just writing it out. It's a living thing.
0: Yeah, and and I think when you capture it, the listener feels it, uh, mm-hmm. whether they whether they know it or not. You know, if it if it piques somebody's uh, attention and and and, and it, they feel something, you've done that. You know, you've you've uh, translated that that thing that emotion uh, musically, and it's and it's that's what you know. I try to start try try and do, and um, and my heroes uh, do. You know, like Tom Petty. I mean, it's just you know they didn't. That's not all, mostly recorded altogether, but some of it is later stuff is, mm-hmm. but still like Wildflowers is like
1: man, I mean, that, <laughs>
0: that's,
2: that's there, that thing. It's there. 100 percent. Well, so w- what's happened since uh, since American Sin? Uh, you know, what's what's been going on? Oh, so okay. So we
0: we recorded it uh, in that one day. I took everything back and started uh, mixing the uh, the acoustic stuff, acoustic uh, American Wino first, um, because all of this th- all this is being done on a shoestring budget. I mean, there was sure. no budget. You know, it was everybody everybody basically played on it for free as a favor or, you know, it's my yeah. birthday. Can you play on it for free <laughs> kind of a deal? You know, the studio was a fraction of the price because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it. And I'm like, yeah. I want to make, quote unquote, a big record and push it, you know, mm-hmm. just let's do it. You know, everybody was in. So I, so I mixed everything myself, too. Uh, they, they tell you not to produce your own record, and they definitely tell you not to mix your own record, <laughs> which I did both of those things. So uh-huh. I mixed American Wino first, um, painstakingly going through it um, and, you know, talking to Brian Carp almost nightly on mixes. And then because I wanted to release that on April 1st, April Fool's Day. Uh, so nice. we released that on April Fool's Day. And now I had to sit down and start mixing the, the whole American Sin record. It took me from, I guess, April to about about July to mix it. I remixed it three times, the Mm. full record. Wow. (laughs)
2: Nice.
0: Obsessing, obsessing about it because, you know, it had to have that thing that I was looking for at that particular point in time. I eventually got it down where I was happy with it. Nothing made me cringe, Then my buddy Seth uh, Von Paulus in LA uh, mastered it for me for next to nothing again. So now now it was done, it was ready to go. And now it was, okay, let's do the radio campaign, right? So Mm -hmm. my buddy Dave Avery, who owns Powderfinger Productions up in Boston, got behind it and uh, we dropped it to radio in, uh, I think it was the first week of September. And it stayed on the Americana chart, kept bopping up and down. I think the highest it got was eighty nine or something like this. So it performed showing? It performed it performed really well according to Dave, and it stayed on the chart for over twenty weeks because they stopped counting it after twenty weeks. Mm Mm-hmm with various songs and I would get weekly reports and you know apparently I was I'm big in Hawaii nice a few other places got you know I think around the Denver area and and some stuff around Portland was getting a lot of play that was sort of into January and then it was kind of like okay let's let's map out 2020 we've got some momentum you can hit some of these hot spots I was I could fly out do a radio interview do a little acoustic thing at a at a club or wherever you know coffee shop doesn't matter while i'm there fly back home i could do those in one day start promoting the record full on like that and then uh and then the the pandemic hit and like everything just stopped dead in its tracks
2: yeah How, I mean, that has to be incredibly hard to deal with. Like I can, I can imagine because, you know, here's your, your album that you're pushing, right? This is, this is the one that's starting to get some airplay and, you know, you're doing this thing and, and it's kind of, you know, based on our conversation tonight, at least, uh, you know, it kind of feels like this is, this is where you're starting to kind of step into your own really and and do your thing and so forth. And then pandemic hits. How do you deal with that? i i don't really have the answer
0: um i mean when it when it happened it was like what the hell is going on like like everything stopped there was no work there was no gigs there was no nothing i mean it was like how am i gonna pay rent kind of a deal like it was you know there was some some the early days were like you know freaking out yeah um and i just moved to a new apartment just before that too like it was a whole So then you kind of, you know, it levels out. You got to kind of like day by day, night by night, as it says in Single Scoop Single Lady, but it's true. I mean, still every day, it's just one day at a time. Um, I can't, there's no plans. Um, I know people who, you know, are sidemen in major touring bands and all of their tour dates have been canceled up until 2021. Like there's nothing booked for, I mean, nobody knows. So... I'm you know well so I recorded I started doing live streams like everybody did yeah you know uh, just to keep sane a little bit because I had a bunch of regular weekly gigs there was you know I'd fly to New York every six weeks or so I'd be up there four or five times a year so I started doing live streams and just kind of tried to start kind of write ideas but now you're like kind of like a prisoner in your own house so it's kind of you know people are like oh you must be getting so much writing done it's like <laughs> i'm not that I'm, why why do you assume that
2: mm. but <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, we, we I'm, all I'm assume those things, man. Like, yeah. you know, I, I <laughs> will be honest with you. You know, I, I haven't, I haven't left my house to go do work since March 6th. And again, and I've said it a minute, a million times, I feel like I'm really lucky to be in the industry I am and be able to work remote and so forth. For sure. But at the same time, it's, uh, especially for someone like me who loves to be around people, it's, I've dealt with depression uh, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, yeah. like I not even realizing I was depressed. I mean, just right. This is, you know, everything stopped, you know, everything stopped and all of the plans have changed and, you know, and we're all dealing with it, you know, and, and I don't know that anybody has the, the answer, um, but it's something that we're all going through together and just to some degree, I hope that, that at least when we get to the other side of it, we're able to at least pull some community through it and be like, Hey, we all, we all survived this thing together. You know, let's, let's yeah. try to have a little bit of empathy for one another because we've all gone through this crazy stuff.
0: Right. I mean, agreed. And, um, you know, it's, it's it's never happened before, so you, nobody's got the answer, you know. I mean, there's many mental, psychological issues that, that arise, but um you try to, you know, that's why I re- recorded the whole album acoustically, just because I, I went back and I listened to some of the initial demos for it, for the songs, and I was like, hmm, this this might be good, just kind of, you know, why not? just something to do. Mm -hmm. I can just do it here. It's not going to cost me anything.
2: I got tons of time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, we always think that we always, you know, right. I remember I remember some of my friends, I, I moved into a new job one time and they're like, oh, you're going to have so much time to do this other stuff. And I'm like, you're probably right. But odds are I'm not going to because I'm human and flawed. And I'm going to be right. like, oh, I, I kind of like screwing off more than I do actually right. working on this particular thing. So, <laughs> exactly, you know, I mean, yeah. we and we all need to give ourselves a break and, and, and practice a little bit more self-love because it's a tough time. You know, the fact that you're finding ways to make it through a really challenging time is to be applauded because that's hard to do. It's hard. It's, I mean, this ain't an easy time. Um, You know, I mean, it's, it, like you said, it's never really happened before. Definitely not in our lifetime. So no, man, I mean, we're all trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's
0: groundhog day every day, you know, Um, (laughs) literally, I mean, it's, you know, I'm lucky enough that I Got a got a job working at the Rock and Robin Guitars here in Houston, so that's kept me somewhat out of going into, into de- deeper uh, into you know just weirdness. Really, you know, yeah. I, I get to get out of the house and I get to sell sell guitars. You know, it's not, it's all safe and all that mask wearing. And it's, you know, in that sense, everything's too cool, but at least there's that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of the the thing I, I'm doing now. You know, meanwhile, I still do my once a week Wednesday live stream ramble from the Continental Club and then, you know, a few other things. I'm kind of starting to thinking about writing uh, stuff. So just trying to pivot, I guess yeah. is what
2: they say, you know, you got to kind that- of pivot. That is what they say. That is, that is, the, that is the term that is yeah. used and overused uh, these days. Yeah. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, yeah, I always try to, uh, anytime that I can, uh, you know, tune into your live streams, I do that. And uh, we, will, uh, we will put links to all your stuff that you want to share in the show notes. Um, cool. It's nice to see. An artist willing to do whatever they need to for their art, and you're you're a good guy too. I I I just you know I enjoy you. So uh, thank you. We'll we'll definitely do all that um, for sure.
0: I really I really appreciate you, and um, it's kind of you know it's like you know how do you do it? It's kind of early on. You 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 know somebody told me you just you just do it. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, that that makes sense. Well, let me me ask you, yep. Yeah, let me ask you this. So um, if you were counseling a an up-and-coming artist, you know, so and I say up-and-coming, I, yeah. I don't mean the hottest new person or people or band. Yeah. I mean somebody says, hey, I want to do this. this. This inspires me. This moves me. This is my passion. What would you tell them uh, in, in regards uh, to, you know, doing it? I mean, like, what, what, you know, just from your wisdom, because you've been doing this a long time, man, you yeah. know, uh, you know, what, is there anything that you would you'd tell them or impart to them and say, hey, you know, look out for this or this or, you know, any thoughts? Um,
0: sort of, and I would say, if there's any way you can figure out a way not to do it, do that. But, <laughs> If you must do, well, it's like, you know, the, the famous quote is, uh, you know, if, if you have to play music for for a living, you're screwed. <laughs> but if you love music and you have to play it, you're really, really screwed. <laughs> um, but no, but seriously, uh, I would say um, it's doable. Don't count on it paying your bills anytime soon. It does happen, but you have to kind of juggle it. It's not, uh, it's, it's a lifestyle choice because you have to, Alter your lifestyle for that pursuit. You need to have definitive goals and reach those goals, and then move on to next goals. Is what I've found. Like there always has to be an end to the means. Those things are you got to find and see what the, that is for you. But uh, but you know, if, if you love doing it, then love doing it and embrace it. But don't expect anything back from it. Gotcha. Um, because if you don't expect anything back you're not setting yourself for for disappointment so (laughs) i don't expect anything out of this craziness uh, called the music business Mm. but once in a while things pop up and i'm amazed and and grateful for them to have happened so but i have you know i do go out and try and uh, achieve those things expecting nothing in return at all (laughs) yeah
2: gotcha (laughs) is there anything that that you just want to say i mean is, is there any anything you kind of want to put out there i'm opening it up and if, if there isn't that's cool too i just wanted to give you an opportunity before we kind of wrapped everything up
0: um i think we've sort of covered it all we did a cool video for american sin my buddy jason you we shot that at the continental club it's very it's black and white you can't see where we are it turned out really well and that's robert rodriguez playing accordion on that song Yeah. I mean, you know, check out my stuff and I I sure appreciate you guys uh, uh, having me on here and and buying the records and listening to the live streams and all that. And, you know, the the little online tips and virtual tips and all that, that, that really does go a long way. So for those of you who've been doing that, thank you.
2: All right, awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show. I really, really appreciate it, man. It's been great catching up and talking with you and and learning more about your story. Uh and I, I really I can't wait to pass it on uh you know to the to the audience. So thanks for, for being here, man.
0: Thanks, I mean, I, I love your podcast and I remember you uh talking about it um at camp all the way mm-hmm. Yeah, you, know, you told me the Plain Ordinary Dragon story, and uh, so um, I'm so uh, glad that you got this, uh, this going, and you're on season two now and everything, so yeah, yeah really six, cool,
2: are Yeah, we're, we're like 65 episodes in now. It's wow. crazy. Yeah, I, I can officially say I, I'm a podcast host now. Nice. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, dude. Wasn't that a fun conversation? I really enjoy Luba and his perspective and his music. Just a few things I took away from the conversation before we go. Lubin knew from an early age what inspired him and what he wanted to do on his journey through life. He's followed that passion throughout his life, creating art at every opportunity. And we can do the same. It's a choice. Make sure you check out the show notes for the ways that you can interact with him. You can find him on Facebook and Instagram uh, or at his website, uh, but we'll have those links in the show notes. And as always, I want... To leave you with this thought, you might be plain, you might be ordinary, but you're a dragon. You can do amazing things in this world, and we can't wait to hear your voice in this world that so badly needs it.
1: Where are the answers? See, where are the hopes I need? Answer. Help me, help me.